know, I think one of the things I'm coming to realize about days like Easter, that for some of us in our Christian past, these kinds of days were used to dismiss, demean, and devalue other religious traditions it's where we would all sort of get together and go, our, our guy's the best and everybody else's guide isn't real or something like that. Um, and I think one of the gifts I'm finding is it is possible to celebrate as a Christian what Easter means for us without doing all that other stuff. We can do it benevolently to other traditions. We don't have to live in hostility to other religious traditions that right now are also celebrating really important days um, with our Jewish and Muslim siblings. We can honor and celebrate for them and with them while also having our own sort of day to celebrate. And I know Easter, it's both the biggest day on the Christian calendar, nobody tell Christmas, but it's the biggest day on the Christian calendar. And at the same time, for those of us who have been going through maybe the language deconstruction, maybe the language of faith shift, something's happened to us and our faith isn't where it used to be. For lots of us, this day, while it may be the biggest, it also has become one of the biggest struggles. What do we do with this day? What do we do with the claims of this day? And I would argue, have we even really ever understood or heard the claims of this day? Um, and that's what I wanna dig into today. And we, we take sort of the same approach to Easter as we do to Christmas. Um, how many of you have ever been to a Christmas pageant where everything that is recorded in the gospels about Jesus' birth sort of happens all together, right? So you have, you have an angel to Joseph, an angel to Mary, you have the journey to Bethlehem, you have shepherds and you have magi. And, and what you begin to realize is, oh no, those are two, those are, are, they're two stories and we've harmonized them to sort of make them all say the same thing when they're two different stories. And that's okay. When it comes to Easter, we have, there are four gospels in the New Testament, but there are more Easter stories recorded in the gospels than that. There are quite a few Easter stories and we tend to harmonize them um, so that we'll have the events of one happening with the events of another. And so I thought it'd be fun because this is, I'm calling it the Easter stories, Bible fun, trivia fun quiz, um, because this is, this is how I get enjoyment. So um, I'm inviting you all to enjoy it as well. Uh, so here's a few questions. Let's just throw the first one up if we can. Who was the first to write about Jesus' resurrection in the, in the New Testament? Anybody want to guess? It's a, trick, it's a little bit of a trick question. Paul. Paul wrote in the 50s. The first gospel, Mark, came about in the 70s. Uh, next, which gospel's Easter story includes the ninjas? <laughs> and before you laugh, let's show the picture. The Easter Ninja Wall Crawlers three-pack. So here's what I think happened. There was this sort of, Easter was feeling a bit jealous about the three wise men. And they needed their, Easter needed its own trio to really accentuate the story. And thanks to capitalism, we got the Easter Ninja Wall Crawlers. I would have given anything at this point to have been in that board discussion. We need a new Easter item this year. Somebody go read the Bible and tell me what you got. I don't know, Bob, I, I think ninjas. And everybody around the table's like, yes. What has J Jesus been missing for 2000 years? Being accompanied by ninjas, who doesn't want that? So um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a recently discovered gospel. Uh, which gospel's Easter story includes the Emmaus Road story where Jesus sort of goes on a little jog or walk with some people, anybody know? Luke, that is correctamundu. Um, which gospel's Easter story has an empty tomb but no appearance of Jesus? Bye -bye. 
I believe what they just said in Greek was Mark, and that is correct. Well done. We have a three-pack of Easter ninjas that we're... Yeah, what's interesting, the Gospel of Mark ends with the women going to the tomb and a young man, not an angel, being present and telling the women that Jesus isn't there, he's been raised, but we get no appearance of Jesus, which disturbed some early Christian scribes so much to the point that they created endings to add on to the Gospel of Mark. Um, So Mark actually ends, whether it actually ended there or there was something else, it seems like it ended there in verse eight with the women leaving the tomb saying nothing to no one. Um, And clearly somebody got said something too. And so people were uncomfortable. They wrote additional endings, but that's how Mark originally ends. Uh, Which gospel's Easter story has Jesus appearing to his disciples on a mountain? Matthew. And then last, which gospel's Easter story has a race to the empty tomb? the most petty possible way to talk about the resurrection of our Lord. We had a race and I won. Oh, by the way, the tomb was empty, Jesus was alive. Um, That's one of the stories in the Gospel of John. There are a couple different stories John tells. um, But those, yeah. So, I mean, besides that being a really good time, um, one of the reasons I wanted to show you is, is the Easter stories are not all saying the same thing. They're not all telling the same story. And it's not even as people often say, well, they're all telling it from different angles. Well, those are some weirdly different angles because the details are completely opposite. Um, And so I I think what the Christmas stories, what the Easter stories, what the gospels are trying to do as we've been talking about in the series, they're not giving us literal history. They are trying to convey meaning. They've had experiences. They want us to see for them what these experiences mean and why these experiences impacted their life. Say what you want about whatever happened on Easter. We're going to talk about that. You have to make some sort of accounting for the fact that there were people who at one point deserted Jesus and were terrified. And the next moment they are giving their life for this movement. Something happened to them, something that was, for them was extremely and extraordinarily real and transformative. And I think that same thing is something available to us even now. Uh, and so that's what I wanna explore today. I wanna begin with two statements about Easter that'll sort of shape everything else. Here's the first one. Easter is a subjective experience. That is all it can be. And by saying it's subjective, I'm comparing it to objective. And when something's objective, it means it's not biased or influenced by any personal viewpoint or any sort of personal stuff. It's just how it is. Basically how most Christians think they read the Bible. Um, And you can't, right? You you cannot leave yourself and approach anything, any text. Reading the Bible is a subjective experience for us. We're bringing our worldview, our interpretive lens, everything to the table. And I think that's true of resurrection too. Subjective means it's grounded in your experience. That who you are, where you live, all of that stuff has had an influence on what your experience has been and how you understand your experience. But we could argue for days, years, decades, centuries, millennia on end about what would have happened if you had been present at the tomb on Easter morning, that if you'd been out there with a video camera, what would you have caught on camera? We could have all sorts of debates on how the first Easter was or wasn't an objective experience, that a a dead person came back to life, was raised and walked out of a tomb and ate some fish and said some stuff, right? We could argue and debate whether or not that happened. Here's the thing. How many of you have the tape? If somebody raised their hand, uh, that would have been awesome. 
That would have been awesome. You don't, I don't, because it, it's, it's an experience, whatever it was for the first people who knew Jesus. Easter for us only can be a subjective experience. We are all, all left to decide what Easter is, what Easter means in our own lens, in our own experience. There's this Easter hymn we used to sing in the Baptist church growing up. And um, when I started going through my deconstruction experience, I really started sneering at this hymn. Let me give you a little of the, the lyrics of it. I, I'm going to try not to sing it because nobody deserves that. <laughs> I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives. He lives. There's an echo right there that I really wanted you to have the full experience. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how, he know, how I know he lives. Anybody know the rest of it? He lives within my heart. And I, in my know-it-all early deconstruction period where I sneered and scoffed at so much of everything, I thought, if that's the only way you know, then you should just walk away from the whole thing. If you don't know that you, like, like all I wanted was, I just want the facts. Produce a body, give me an empty tomb, show me. So if the only evidence you have for anything is that you believe it in your heart, that's some pretty flimsy evidence. And friends, 20 years later, I've come around to going, I think that's the only evidence you get for Easter. I, I think 2005 Josh was wrong about so many things. But that may be one of the biggest. The Easter experience is something that comes to us and we decide what to do with it. In the Gospel of John, they run to the tomb, they bend down, they see the strips of cloth laying there, they look in and they have to decide, what do we do with this? There's an empty tomb, there's no Jesus. What do we do with this? It is an invitation to experience. I mean, if Easter had been a subjective reality, it seems like it would have been smart for them to have gathered another crowd of 5,000 plus and said, look, he's back. Tell everybody. We don't get that experience. Easter comes to each of us and says, what am I to you? Look into the tomb, stay a minute, think about it. Who is this Jesus? Who is this person? What has he done? What has happened to him? What does it mean? Easter is, I believe, a subjective experience. And then second, I think Easter is a political event. Now, I know there's gonna be somebody who probably catches this on YouTube later and, and will be a little critical and say, come on, man, can you leave politics alone on Easter for like all days? Can you just be quiet about politics? It's Easter. Like we should all be celebrating today, not talking about politics. Here, here's the thing. I can't leave it alone because I think it's what the story means. So let's put it like this. Rome, the empire, had legally and publicly executed Jesus as the representative of another kingdom. Rome had publicly and legally executed Jesus because he represented a kingdom that rejected Rome's value system, that rejected Rome's way of running the world and offered a different way. If, if the cross is anything, the cross is a Roman referendum on Jesus' message. Do you, it's like going into the ballot box and saying, do you like Jesus' message, yes or no? Rome voted no, and they nailed him to a cross. On Easter, God overrides the no. 
God vetoes Rome's no with an emphatic yes, that the powers that decide how the world gets run, the powers who decide who gets power and who gets wealth and who doesn't, who lives and who dies, they don't get the final say. God got the final say. And God's final say over Jesus was yes. So you start going into a Roman occupied world and saying this, God raised this Jesus you executed back up from death. What is that ultimately saying? That there is one who is greater and more powerful than Caesar. That there is one who actually has the last word and his name isn't Caesar. That Caesar feels like he's all powerful and he can't even keep a Jewish peasant dead. It's a political event. Listen to how Paul wrote about it in Philippians. Paul remembers our earliest witness to Jesus, to his life, to, to his, everything we know about Jesus, or the earliest layer comes from Paul. He wrote this in the mid-50s. And most people think, scholars think, that he's actually quoting an early Jesus follower hymn here in Philippians 2. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see that? When, when you begin to see it through this lens, do you see how political that is? Who was Lord in the first century? The position wasn't vacant. They weren't taking applications for Lord or Savior. They had one. His name was Caesar. He ran the world. Caesar was the one at whose name every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Caesar is Lord or it's curtains. And Paul writes some treasonous, treasonous words when he says, actually, this Jesus that the empire executed, this Jesus that was told no and thrown to the wayside, this is actually what a Lord looks like. This is the name that every Caesar's knee will bow to and every Caesar's tongue will confess is actually Lord, worthy of the title of Lord. So those two things, keep in mind as we move forward, I think Easter is a subjective experience. What else could it be? I think Easter is a political event. And I think this event says something about God. I think Easter says that God has always taken sides. I, and I, this is maybe when I realize that I'm not as maybe progressive and evolved as I should be because there's so much, like, let's just not take sides in the world. Let's not take sides. Let's just, let's just not, let's not do that. that. That seems kind of, you know, like we're still trying to play good, bad, whatever, but I, I still think that there are some sides that need to be taken in the world. And I think God takes sides. I think God, in the Easter experience, what it tells us that God has always sided with the poor, the oppressed, the abused, and the mistreated. Always. 
God has always been on their side. Now the problem is that has been lost with eons and eons of really powerful, wealthy people consolidating power and then telling us the gods are on our side. The gods put us in charge. The gods gave us all this authority. And then Christianity happens and you have Christian leaders going around going, God's on my side because I'm the leader. God put me in charge because I'm the leader. And you're supposed to do everything I say and make my life great. And maybe then in the afterlife, you'll have a really, really swell experience. And actually, what Easter says is that God doesn't bail on Jesus. That Jesus gives himself willingly. He does not rise up with an army and start swinging. He dies a non-violent death. And God does not abandon Jesus. Resurrection is God saying, Jesus, I'm not leaving you behind. Your life mattered. What you gave mattered. We live with this understanding in the world that might makes right. Then Easter says, actually, sometimes, maybe all the time, might never makes right. That flexing your muscles and using your weapons actually is never the right thing. By raising up by vindicating and siding with Jesus, God sides with all victims everywhere, all the time. There's some of you right now in this room, there's some of you online, some, and some of you listening to this six months from now, and you have come to this spot and you have been so deeply harmed by the religion that was started in Jesus' name. You have been wounded, you have beaten up, been beaten up, you have been excluded, you have been shamed, you have been guilted, you have been mistreated in the most ultimate ways. What Easter means is that God sides with you, not the religion started in Jesus' name that has wounded you. I don't think God has very much invested in Christianity these days. I think God has a lot invested in the victims of Christianity these days. God sides with the victims of gun violence, not with the powerful supermajority that tries to silence the voices of the people calling for change. God sides with those whose rights are being trampled and lives are being threatened by those who peddle in fear and engage in violence. God sides with everyone who's ever been run over in the name of progress, beaten up to prevent progress, or gaslit and blamed for suffering they did not ask for and did not cause. And there are churches all over the country this morning that are proclaiming a resurrection they do not understand. Because resurrection is not, we've got the power, give us more power. Resurrection is every time somebody's sent packing, God goes with them. And if churches are dead and dying in the United States of America, it's because like Elvis, God has left the building and gone with the people who have been harmed by what's going on in the building. You will always find God among those who have been harmed, among those who have been oppressed, among those who have been forgotten. Easter is sort of a, a God's promise. I will always show up to tombs. I will always be present, even on Good Fridays. I think Easter says something about Jesus too. I think it says that Jesus isn't just part of the past, but Jesus is part of the present. Whatever, what that, whatever that means to you. And we could have like a 52-week 
thousand week series on what it means for Jesus to be present. But I'll say this, I, I think for some of us, we've had moments in our lives when we've had the sense that this Jesus we talk about is still with us. He's not a figure of the past alone. He is also a continuing presence somehow with us. I think that's true for his followers. I think when they said, I've seen the Lord, it was at least that they experienced him as an ongoing reality even after his life had been taken. That his life was so large that death couldn't end it. That God raised his life up so that it continued on. I think Easter means that Jesus is vindicated. I think Easter is God saying he was right all along. The stuff he said about injustice, he was right all along. The stuff he said about the misuse of power, he was right all along. The stuff he said about greed, he was right all along. The stuff he said about how we should treat one another and live in community together, he was right all along. I think Easter means Jesus being raised up by God means that he lives. I think Jesus being raised up by God means Jesus is Lord. And what I mean when I say Jesus is Lord is that for me as a human being, Jesus' vision for the world is a world that I want to live in. And that somebody like Jesus can be trusted to bring that world about in healing, jubilee-like, in just ways. I think Easter also says something about us. I think it means that what began with Jesus doesn't stop with Jesus. Now look, I don't think, primarily the message I got growing up was Easter means Jesus went to heaven when he died and so can you. I don't think Easter's primarily about the afterlife. I think Easter is about being transformed, raised up in this life to partner with God to bring about healing and justice in the world. You know what has been unbelievably profound with all the ugliness that has happened in our state over the last months, especially over the last week, is there's a new generation of people who've had it. They've had enough. They are tired of going to tombs and mourning when resurrection is possible. They are tired of believing what some of our own representatives have said, which is, can't do anything about it, not gonna do anything about it, not really something we're gonna change. And they're saying, no, actually we can bring about change. We, we can bring resurrection out of death. We can shift the way this thing is going. We are not destined or fated to a world where people can't go to schools, churches, or movie theaters, or anywhere else and be safe. We are not fated to that world. We made that world. God didn't make it. And if we made it, maybe we can unmake it. Maybe there's a better way. And we have a generation of kids now who are saying, well, if our grandparents aren't gonna do it, and if our parents aren't gonna do it, if Cousin Eddie's not gonna do it, we're gonna do it. And they have gone to the very seat of power and they've said enough's enough. And we have watched grown men quake in their boots. So much so that they unjustly expel the voices of those very constituents. Those are Good Friday moments. But Good Fridays are followed by Easter moments. It says something about us, what's possible for us, what we can do together, that we can bring about a different world. And actually, I think Easter ultimately says something about everything. It says something about everything. 
One of the most gripping scenes in all of the gospels is in John 20 when Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb on Sunday morning only to find Jesus' body gone. She's in a garden. They, in John, they bury Jesus in a garden. She goes to the tomb. Jesus is gone. She begins weeping, wondering what has happened to the body of her beloved teacher. Jesus appears. He, he lo- the, the gospel writers love incognito Jesus after the resurrection. He just sort of shows up. It's, it, it's not at all creepy either. He's just like, I'm just going to show up and see how long it takes. You know? Um, and so he shows up and he's, he's talking to her and she thinks he's the gardener. One of the most interesting details. They're in a garden. She thinks he's the gardener. And she's exactly right. See, in John, there's this beautiful rhythm of there are these signs, seven signs in John. But then on Resurrection Sunday, there's an eighth sign. And the eighth sign is the beginning of a new week, it's the beginning of a new creation. And Jesus says her name, Mary, and she sees him and she clings to him and she runs to his disciples and she says, I have seen the Lord and I believe her every time I read it. I believe she saw the Lord, whatever that meant for her, I believe it. And she meets Jesus, the gardener in the garden of new creation. I think what John is saying is that what resurrection means, what Easter means is that new creation is bursting forth. It's not going to start when the old goes away. Anybody else just want all the problems to go away and then the good stuff to start? Anybody else just wish that's how the world worked? Like everything's cleaned up, now we start fresh. That's just not how it works, is it? When anybody in the world has longed for more freedom, when anybody in the world has longed to flourish, but there have been powers and oppressors keeping them from flourishing, what do they do? They begin little by little to steward that spark of new creation that they're carrying around. Little by little, they begin to give it life. Little by little, they begin to nurture it and it begins to grow and suddenly it is unleashed on the world and you can try to slow it down, but you're not going to stop it because justice will roll like a river. And I think that's what we're being told in John. This is how new creation works. The old, unjust, unjust, terrible stuff doesn't go away, but little by little, we begin nurturing this new life until it becomes something that can't be stopped. We're at the time of year where the ground has been frozen and hard, and now plants are beginning to start to peak above the surface. And you know, I'll see that one day, and I'll go, hey, look, something's growing there. And then I'll forget about it, and I look back like two weeks later, and it's it picked up a head of steam. It happened. You ever stood beneath a massive tree? And just like, where did that come from? Well, at one point, it was, it was here. And slowly over time, when it's nurtured and cared for, it begins to grow and it becomes formidable and it changes the landscape. That's what new creation is about. That's what I think Easter is about. Frederick Buechner says, resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. Resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. If we keep showing up, if we keep showing up, what I find so interesting about the gospel stories is that in every one of them, people show up to the tomb of Jesus. 
they show up to the tomb of Jesus. And I, I don't think they showed up going like, watch this. I, I think they showed up doing what you do when you show up at the grave of a loved one. To mourn, to weep, to ask why, to curse at the sky, to be human. And in every account, they get there and they peer in and they're asked to make a decision about, what do you think this means? What do you think it means that the tomb is no longer occupied? I think that's the question we're being asked this Easter. As we gather together around the tomb, we're being asked, what do you think it means to say that Jesus lives and Jesus is Lord? What does it mean for the future of everything? What does it mean for our future? What does it mean for the world? What does it mean for the injustice of the world? What does it mean for all the people who are being harmed in Jesus' name in the world? What does it mean? We look into this tomb and my invitation for us this Easter is simply this. Let's, let's just be there for a minute. Let's not draw big conclusions. Let's not go out saying, well, we know for sure that we know that we know that we know. Let's be willing to sit in that question. What does the resurrection mean for me in my own existence? How is it going to shape the way I show up in the world? How is it gonna show, how's it gonna shape the way I use my influence? How's it gonna shape the way I use my resources? How's it gonna shape the way I show up for those who are being oppressed, mistreated, abused, and forgotten? Because if it doesn't do anything about, if it does nothing, if it does none of that, then we're not really dealing with anything that matters anyway. Right? I mean, if that's the case, if it doesn't affect how we show up for justice in the world, then I think we've just missed it. But friends, new creation, if you have eyes to see it, is beginning to poke through the ground, even now. And it is inviting each and every one of us to become the gardener. What will we do with it? What will we do with it? So I don't know. I don't know what happened on the first Easter. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know that it's something that could have been caught on camera, but I'll tell you what I believe. Yeah. I believe he lives. I believe he lives because I've seen him live through so many of you. And I believe he lives because I see him in our community and the way we want to show up in the world and the way we're going to keep showing up in the world. Are you with me? So let's go for new creation.